Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Hello to one and to all. I'm Peter Jay. Thanks for tuning in to More Perfect Union. Today, well, today we try to analyze, while things are still in motion, what is going on in Afghanistan, known as the Graveyard of Empires. People have gone in before us and tried to bring order to chaos and not done that. It was our turn. We have not done that. And, you know, as of this morning, this is Thursday morning following the Taliban's takeover of Kabul. So we're all, even now, a few days later, still fathoming what's going on as the U.S. government seeks to extradite, uh, remove thousands of people per day until the end of this month. So that is already underway. But it leaves us all with, obviously, many questions, all of which fit under the masthead. What happened? So looking back over the summer, and even prior to that last winter, as we know, there were 15,500 troops, I believe, last winter, when Trump negotiated a uh, reduction of force, and troops were then reduced down to 2,500, which were all slated to be out by May 1st. That date, of course, came and went. And I think one thing some people haven't spoken about is that because uh, summertime is the fighting season in Afghanistan, May 1st would have been an opportune, logical time to have all of the troops out had that happened uh, before the fighting season started. According to the uh, negotiations of last winter, the Taliban basically opted to lay back and avoid attacking Americans, assuming that we were still making a good, a good faith effort to exit. And that military uh, detente has been in play. But in the meantime, of course, the map kept on becoming more and more red, Talibanized with the ensuing weeks. And we've been watching this unfold. So to my mind, when you see a logical progression on a map and you see capital after capital after capital being taken over at a given rate, the math tells you and this is the thing, mathematics tells you that Kabul is about to fall while we were hearing, oh, that's 30 days away. Didn't happen. So how did we get it so wrong? That's, that's really the big question in my mind. I am quite concerned about um, a number of things that Afghanistan has sort of brought to the front for me. Um, and I must admit that my conservative side has been accentuated uh, to a point where, as a U.S. citizen, I cannot stop thinking about not only the lives that we've lost and the families and how they must feel at this point, who uh, sent their sons and daughters 
to Afghanistan, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles. And now <clears throat> within 11 days to see it revert back to basically what it was 20 years ago when we first entered the country. Uh, that's got to be unsettling and disturbing and helping to, I guess, increase the uh, the angst and bring about those feelings of distraughtness. And my heart goes out to those families. And it's important, I also think, too, from another standpoint, who was watching the bank? I mean, a trillion dollars over a 20-year period. It sounds like a lot of money, but spread over a 20-year period, especially when you look at part of that cost is just the maintenance and the upkeep of our military uh, while they were there in the country. But still, these are my dollars, your dollars, uh, which I was very in support of at first because I thought it was a great cause for us to go and try to root out those who would do us harm uh, in terms of these independent terrorist groups. And now I look at that and I go a trillion dollars when possibly we should have just gone in, taken out Al-Qaeda, and then left immediately, knowing full well what the history was, especially having watched the Russians go through a similar thing over a 10-year period. And now I sit here and I am also uh, concerned, especially for our president, who did campaign on getting our troops out of Afghanistan, but at the same time, doing it in such a way to where it makes it look like amateur day at first. Uh, they are putting themselves back, I think, on a reasonable track, but at what cost? We now have thousands of Americans, U.S. citizens, who are trapped on the other side of the Taliban checkpoints. And just yesterday, the president said he's going to stay there until we get all of our American citizens out. So now that deadline that was hard and fast of August 31st looks like it's going to go beyond uh, August 31st. But our footprint now is strictly limited to the military, uh, the military side of the airport. And then there's something else, too, that I am just woefully uh, just I don't understand it, which is that 20 years ago, young women were being born in Afghanistan who were the beneficiaries of an enlightened change in their whole political and social structure to the point where suddenly young women were going to school, elementary school, high school, going to college. Uh, being released from the Sharia law that required them to cover almost every single inch of their body and stuff for no other reason than some men who believe that that's what the Quran instructs them to do, subjugated to being separated from the rest of society simply because they were women. And now these young women in their 20s are going to be faced with a reality that they have never seen before. And I'm quite concerned, and I hope our listeners are paying attention to what's going on and that we're speaking our voice to not only our Congress people, but also we're being intellectually honest in that we are not necessarily just going to stand behind Joe Biden and this administration simply because they're the Democrats and we may happen to be a Democrat, but we're going to be on the side of right. And I hope this administration wakes up and let's talk about that, uh, hopefully within the next few minutes. Well, I, for one, think that while this is a major gaffe of the administration, if the administration at least understands 
that you know this has to be set to right and starts to mount a response as they did with getting COVID back on track. Even in belatedly fashion, it will it will end up finding its way forward in in, in a proper way. But at this point, you know, much of the damage has been done. What's going on day after day after day right now is unfortunately becoming part of history. We're watching history unfold. And and so the political ramifications of that are are fairly serious come the midterms and going forward. So I want to jump in to broadly talk about forever wars and, you know, is this going to make us think about that question? So 20 years, I mean, I think it's really important. People are asking the question, you know, what went wrong? Why are we here? Why have we wasted all this money? And we're back at square zero. And I think it's really hard for someone um, like myself who has worked, you know, at the UN, who believes in kind of rebuilding countries and the reason we entered in the first place, you know, protecting human rights, ensuring that people can live the lives that they um, deserve to live, that all of that is being threatened. So I think there's many conversations. We could have a conversation of, are we going to talk about the role of the US in the international arena? Are we going to allow ourselves to enter again a forever war? What are the triggers? Is it genocide? Is it human rights violations? What are we going to do about the refugees right now? So you know, my immediate concern right now, obviously, is around refugees. You know, people who either supported um, the U.S. government over these last 20 years are at real risk. Um, their lives, their families that are at risk. We have a moral obligation today to get those Afghans out. I think that, to me, is, is a minimum. The second is the conversation that Michael started talking about, you know, women and girls. Um, you know, interestingly, 20 years ago, um, the summer before September 11th, I was in the northwest of Pakistan working with an NGO that was um, supporting sort of, it was a cultural um, ethnic group there, was building a school. And on my way out in the airport, I met an Afghan teacher, a woman. And she said to me, I have set up a school for girls. Can you please come and help me? This was before. She said, the Taliban has given me permission to educate girls. I can only teach with women. Would you come? Like come over the border. It was right on the border. We had Taliban fighters coming in across, you know, it was a very porous border. At the time I was 19 years old, too scared. I obviously didn't go, but I think about that woman. I think about that woman and I think about the promise of the Taliban right now that they won't go back to this complete, you know, girls are not allowed to go to school. Uh, women can't work. My optimistic perspective is that the Taliban wants to be part of a recognized government. And therefore, there are opportunities right now to say these are the minimum standards. If you are going to be taken seriously by the international community, you need to allow girls to be in school, women to work. Like This is the time to make demands because, yes, the Taliban you know, won, but they haven't really won anything unless the international community embraces them. Now, some others might say that that is too much of a cost. We cannot embrace the Taliban ever. And, you know, I'm, I'm being honest here. I don't know what the best strategy is. You know, is it to secure the well-being for the women and girls there right now to make minimal or maximal demands? Um, or if there's a longer term um, strategy that I'm not aware of, but it's complicated. I don't think it's clear black and white. And I think engaging with those who have been in Afghanistan in different capacities, whether at the State Department, whether as teachers, whether in NGOs, whether as part of our military, will be really important. So I hope those conversations are happening. But I think at the moment, the, you know, the Biden administration is trying to protect the narrative, make sure that you know, they're not being blamed. And, and so I don't know if those really deep 
important conversations are happening. No, the uh, thing is, I have reflected upon what's gone on over the last uh, several days. You think of the mission of the United States over the last 20 years was to go in there and provide training and provide resources for folks to you know, live their free life the way they choose to live. And the, the fascinating dynamic to me is that, uh, you know, as the U.S. was preparing to leave, you know, those who were left and trained, you know, pretty much dropped their weapons and did not defend themselves. Uh, the president of the country left the country, did not stay. And, and I'm like, OK, so uh, if this was not a good time to leave, tell me when the good time to leave is. Uh, the, the problem here is that there is no good time. And, you know, you have to, you have to learn. And we learned lessons in, in Vietnam. Sometimes you just have to face the fact that uh, you give it your best and uh, you're not always going to succeed. And for, from, from my perspective, the folks have chosen not to defend themselves. And uh, there's, there's not much that we can do. I do believe and agree with you, Natalia, that we need to insist that uh, if this is the choice they make, okay, but make sure you subscribe to minimal standards of human rights. And you know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from the United Nations is a bold set of principles that uh, I think the world has determined that's the, the type of you know, society that you need to perpetuate. So as, as we see them devolving and you know, not living up to those principles, I think uh, the world needs to stand up. And uh, you know, if, the, if there are violations, there is a international court of justice that uh, these folks can be brought to trial and uh, you know, handle it that way. Uh, the final thing that uh, I would offer, and uh, one of my colleagues has been very vocal on this. He's a senator from uh, Westfield. Uh, he was a House member up until last year, um, but he served in Afghanistan, and he relied upon translators and, and people to help him do his job. And uh, he's imploring the federal government and the Biden administration to protect those people who helped him do his job. And I think we do have an obligation and I'm, I'm happy to see that uh, uh, America is leaving some troops behind uh, in an effort to evacuate and help those who helped us. And I fully support that effort. But I, I go back to my original statement is, you know, if you weren't able to succeed in 20 years, just what do you think we could do by staying there for any longer period of time? Well, you've touched on exactly what's in play, which is a two-part problem or a two-part major question. The first you just raised is, okay, if not now, when? Is another 20 years the magic number, Another, even another five years the magic number? And of course, the longer you stay and the longer you can maintain some sense of human rights normalcy and development of the culture and training women and so forth, there is the likelihood that yes, some progress may be made, but we don't know where that threshold is. We don't know what makes it durable. 
the the second issue of course is okay if not forever then when do we get out and assuming that yes getting out is the right thing to do the whole part b of that discussion is the one of process and how we actually do that and in, most recently biden was defending the fact that yes he expected it to be chaotic i would disagree with that i don't think it had to be as chaotic as what we have witnessed and and that's really unfortunate and and hopefully there has been some internal dressing down whatever it takes to get uh assigns and agents who are responsible for this to start getting it right because they're making the guy at the top look bad now we don't know what the guy at the top did or did not know but it has obviously cast him and with that the entire party in an unfortunate light you know i'd like to uh, uh, i'd like to propose another perspective because uh, in many instances, we as citizens, we, you know, we talk about those things that just sort of come to mind. But let's do a little uh, digging a little deeper. First, uh, if not now, when? Okay. Over the last 20 years, for those of us who are, you know, as historians and academics study these things, one of the things that has been pushed is that there is a cycle to the war in Afghanistan and always has been. And that cycle basically is built around the seasons. One of the things that's been clear is that there has been a lull in the fighting during the winter and an uptick in the fighting during the summer. And part of that is called the Afghan fighting season, for example, which is from the spring through the summertime into the fall. Exactly. Now, tell me, why is it then that I, as an everyday citizen, I'm, well, I'll, you know, I'll, you know, I will say this, I pay a little closer attention and try to retain the things that are being put in front of me in terms of information. And I read quite a bit. So why is it then that we could not have set a time frame where we leave at the, uh, uh, instead of the zenith of time when a counterinsurgency could be mounted to the place where it's less likely that that counterinsurgency could be mounted, which would have been in the wintertime. I mean, one of the things about our military is that we have the flexibility and the material and the logistical uh, capability of moving our troops at any time during the year. In the middle of wintertime, in the middle of a snowstorm, we know how to move our troops around. So given that, Summertime is not the best time for us to have been pulling out of there. Second, knowing full well that you're about to move your troops, you now have those promises that we've made over the 20 years. This is not two years we're talking about in terms of having people who work for us. This is 20 years. We know who they are. And the identification and getting them to safety should have been as much a priority as moving our own citizen. These people put themselves on the line. And if they want us to then adhere to that promise, which we made them, you work for us, we will give you consideration to bring you to America. Then we should have followed through on that promise much earlier than June or July. Third point, it is imperative for us as a country to understand not only the governments that we work with, 
but also how it is that we prop them up. We knew full well that we were there to help train the military and that they needed us as backup, if nothing more than to show them the way. Pulling out our troops 100% puts them in a situation where they say, okay, you're going to abandon us. So now we're on the edge of having to do this on our own. We knew that we had weak government leadership. We knew that some of the military folks, albeit I thought that they were decent soldiers, are going to look at us leaving as part of a logistical nightmare. And if you remember about, uh, again, in May, when we abandoned our air base, we didn't turn it over. We abandoned it. We basically left that air base, did not show them or, or give them the keys and say, okay, we left the lights on and the motor's running for you. All you got to do is get in and drive. No, we left. We left it dark. We didn't even leave the power on. And so here it is. You, you've got a military that has to go in there and now they need a blueprint or something to try to, rest, uh, uh, to, try to restart this. We, our hands are not clean. And I guess I'm to the point where I think it's important for us to get the honest, unfettered story as Americans, rather than people to gloss it over, even the Biden administration. We need to have ourselves as citizens engaged in what's going on around us. And I think Afghanistan, if there's anything that brings out, like I said, my conservative side, it's the idea that now here we are. We're being fed a story, and we have to ascertain what parts of those, uh, what parts of that story, are accurate and which ones are not accurate. And that's where I think we as citizens fall prey to what's going on around us, and then we react to what might be, in some cases, a myth or uh, a fairy tale rather than the truth. And Michael, I want to add that we can't also paint a, a sort of a peachy picture of Afghanistan a year ago, you know, that we things were going perfect and the U.S. there made sure that, you know, everything was good. You know, as the U.N. and people in the international kind of aid community, we know that five, 50 percent of children under five were malnourished, even at the beginning of 2021. Half of the Afghan population uh, required humanitarian assistance. So it's not that it was, you know, a country that was perfect and all we needed to do was fix its military. There are so many real challenges in Afghanistan from you know, ensuring health, ensuring education, ensuring basic development. So the strategy of like fixing a country through a military intervention, in my mind, is also something that we should open up again and say, is that, you know, of course the military didn't feel like they could suddenly um, you know, push back when the people of Afghanistan are still suffering and have been suffering despite the fact that the U.S. was there. You know, there was drought, there was conflict, there were already 500,000 displaced people. Currently, we think it's more. So the civilian needs in terms of humanitarian assistance never were met. We never reached the point where we could say Afghanistan is now a country where the government is meeting the needs, the basic needs of its people. And so focusing only on the military and supporting the military to be strong, well, how, how does the military fit in with a big picture of, you know, ensuring that the people of Afghanistan are strong. And I think we just failed on that very fundamental level. And for me, as someone who is against forever wars, who is for much more support to, to the international 
community stepping in, giving support, building up a country that and a government that serves its people and not trying to hold on to power through military. I think that's the fundamental question and, and, and a failure that I hope with time we will reflect on. And I'm really pleased that the UN has said they are not leaving, they are staying and they are calling for the international community first to keep their borders open so that Afghan refugees can come in. Second, to continue pledging more support because right now there will be more needs internally displaced are going up. And the US, yes, the military might be out, but I hope that the diplomatic part, you know, our State Department, our USAID, I hope they, they will be stepping in in um, large, maybe not numbers on the ground, but in terms of the financial support they can provide. You know, I gotta tell you, I shudder at the thought that the questions that you raised, Michael, were not considered and addressed by uh, those in charge. Uh, I have to believe that great deal of analysis and decision-making relied upon thoughtful consideration of each of those issues. You know, leaving in the middle of the fighting season I sit here and I wonder, I'm not an expert in this particular area, but I sit here and I wonder, well, were they considering the fact that uh, we ought to leave at this particular juncture to uh, give our troops that we trained a solid footing so that they can uh, you know, not become complacent by a lack of activity uh, in the middle of the winter and get caught flat-footed? I have to think that no one believed that this trained force would crumble this quickly. You know, I, I, I have to believe that these discussions took place. And I certainly do believe that with investigations and a strong press, we will find out indeed whether these questions and issues were considered and we will find out why uh, a particular strategy was uh, invoked on, on how we should move. And, uh, you know, that just certainly heightens for me uh, the need for a full and free press to work as the fourth estate of government to, uh, you know, get us answers, answers to those questions. You know, if the Pentagon Papers had not been unearthed uh, back uh, in the Vietnam era, we would not have mm -hmm. really known uh, mm -hmm. answers to many types of questions that uh, that you certainly raise. So, I fully expect that we're going to learn uh, a lot more about this effort, but it still brings us back to that fundamental uh, question. Look at, we've been at this for 20 years, and as Pete had raised in his uh, colloquy, it is, you ask that eternal question, you know, how, how much more can you do? What is the magic number? Is it an additional 40 years? Is it an additional five years? Is it an additional six months? Uh, those are not simple uh, matters, and I want to see. I want to see what analysis was done out there, and uh, I am confident that it will be unearthed, and we will hear. Well, consider this. I, you know, again, as a social scientist and as an academic, you know, one of the things we love to do are, uh, you know, are comparisons. Uh, and let's compare, for example, let's talk about time, uh, 40 years. Well, we've been in Korea for over 40 years with a force larger than what we had at uh, in the last year 
in Afghanistan. We've been in Germany for over 40 years with more bases and a larger force than what we have in Afghanistan. It is, I think, a false argument for us to talk about time as much as it is diplomacy. What have we done with regard to helping the Afghan people to embrace its newfound freedoms, its democracy? I know the United Nations has sent in all kinds of building forces. Uh, There's a United Nations uh, section that deals with, for example, uh, the building up and the education of women, a whole section. uh, And I think it covers like maybe two floors of the United Nations building. And they have been in there since we started 20 years ago. The evidence of their improvements for the uh, uh, for the environment and the social and political state of women is evident in Afghanistan. I am appalled. But put this put this in the context of you know you talk about Korea, you talk about Germany. Are you seeing American troops in Korea and Germany? Uh, suffering casualties and, uh, you know, uh, devastation at the hands of Taliban forces uh, that exist in Afghanistan. I think the conditions in Korea and Germany are vastly different, and that has to play a role in what we're doing here. And uh, Jeff, but let's take a look at in the last year, in the last year, how many casualties were there of American troops in Afghanistan? I don't know, but I'll tell you one is too many. Uh, for me. Well, Well, it was negotiated to be none because the Trump agreement said we were going to be out by a certain time. If you leave us alone, we'll leave. Part of that is true. And prior to that negotiated, quote unquote, truce, okay, there had think I've been maybe two casualties in the whole year. And you're right, Jeff, I'm not condoning those two. What I'm saying is, is that a force of less than 7,000 troops, less than 7,000 troops is what we're talking about here, okay, for the entire country of Afghanistan, okay, and our ability to help the Afghan government can't go overlooked in terms of our stabilizing impact and our ability to keep the Taliban at bay. The other question that I have, And again, these are questions because you're right, Jeff. I don't know what took place. I just know some of the public information that's available. And if this information is available to me, again, I'd like to know the logic then of why leave at the height of the fighting season. Why pull out so fast? And let's hope that our press is able to get those. But again, I think your your comment, too, tells me a little bit about my my uh, my lack of optimism in terms of the transparency of our own government, but the faith that I have in our press, and that's the Pentagon Papers. But for the fact that there was someone willing to put those papers out there, Jeff, and the digging on the part of the uh, of, of the press, we could not have depended upon the government to just come up and tell us the truth. That's the sad part of that commentary. So the question for me is, okay, Were these things considered? And I don't necessarily need to know them in real time, but at some point, I'd really like to know uh, uh, the truth about the matter. 
All right, because I understand that there's some strategic reason why you don't sort of throw out everything right now in the heat of, uh, of our withdrawal. But for sure, at some point, as an American citizen and as an academic, I'd like to know. And then the final piece for me, though, is still the Afghan people and our and what we ought to have as compassion for the Afghan people. Their leaders, uh, I mean, there was a report, albeit it was short lived. There was a report that the president, uh, uh, the now, uh, you know, you know, dis <laughs> thrown out uh, former president of Afghanistan, left the country with millions of dollars in his pocket. I've seen the reports of all of the graft of people who earn millions of dollars in terms of contracts, even some of the Taliban uh, warlords who were bought off of schools that we put money into that were supposed to have been built that were not built. And this is just in the last week. Some of these reports have been made uh, made public. Again, the question. So who's watching the piggy bank? If we're doing these things, who was guaranteeing that there's accountability on the part of that government? And if not, then who is it then who's responsible for that part of the debacle as well? And then let's and then the final piece for me, when you look at Congress and its lack of responsibility in terms of setting up a proper vetting program so that it doesn't take five years for a person or six years or 10 years some of the reports are indicating, of people who have worked for us, and then we, we can't get them into this country after 10 years? I mean, if I'm, a, if I'm a major and I've got five interpreters working for me, is it my word and my documentation that these people work for me enough? Why do I have to have, uh, you know, 150 pages just for the initiation of trying to get a visa? Uh, so Congress, our executive branch, our uh, State Department, I think, are much more culpable, and I agree with Natalia, than the military. The military goes in, they've, they're given a mission, they do it. And I, can, and I have nothing but high praise for our military in terms of them carrying out the mission that they were given. But ultimately, it comes down to a peaceful country like ours. Where is our diplomacy? Where are the people who were on the ground who were supposed to be helping the Afghanistan? And where are the people who were supposed to be holding uh, the spending of American taxpayer dollars accountable? Amen, I say to much of what you said, but I am a bit more optimistic that uh, we will get this. And I do, I do have confidence in our government overseen by a strong press that we will get to the bottom of this. I, I agree. I think the strong press is the real key part of that, Jeff. Yep. I agree with you that, that I can't depend upon the government to be transparent. I can depend upon them to be opaque at best, but, but it's, the, it's the press yep. that makes them or gets them to the point of transparency. And, and it's, it's part of the process, and it's part of uh, how our government was designed. And, um, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing that our government is sometimes opaque. They put it into the Bill of Rights very early on, saying that the, there will be a free press. And there's a reason for that. And, uh, you know, so 
I'm not going to poo-poo our government. I'm part of our government. You're part of our government. If you don't like what the government is doing, you have an obligation as a citizen and as a voter to change that government. So um, absolutely, I, I will stand uh, as part of that government and say, you know, let's, let's do our job. And if you don't think we're doing our job, press, point it out, make us do our job right. And uh, together we will come to the, uh, the, the great conclusions that we need. And, you know, there are going to be many books written about this. And exactly. We'll, we'll read some. A lot of retrospectives. That's a good segue to what I think we're looking at next. Looking at what has happened, and of course we can here on a Thursday morning be Monday morning quarterbacks, um, <laughs> you know, four days late. But uh, I think one of the things <clears throat> to consider is the Taliban is about to shift gears, or at least make an attempt to. The Taliban has had so far a victory of geography. They have seized a land that is fundamentally inhospitable to many, and now they have it. So what do you do now? What they are desperately trying to do now is orchestrate uh, the next phase of things, which is a PR campaign. And, and what we don't know and what we look at askance um, with a jaundiced eye is PR now needs to get converted into actionable items into real results, into a true response that benefits the people. Now, one of the interesting things I heard many years ago, shifting gears for a moment to talk about Hamas, the U.S. didn't want to deal with that. But one, I think, wizened opinion that was put forward was, well, you know, Hamas is picking up the trash. Things have gotten better for the citizenry at some odd local level. And even here in the U.S., we talk about, all right, who deals with the trash, who makes things better, who puts up schools, hospitals, educates people and whatnot. And so Hamas understood that they needed to win hearts and minds on the ground locally, whether they were uh, ill-motivated or, or whatever motivated it. The point was uh, it was a strategy. And so now what we need to see from the Taliban, obviously, is, OK, if we couldn't make the country better, how are you going to do that? Or at least, how are you going to not make it worse? How are you going to remove atrocities of the past uh, and actually demonstrate that you could put together some type of a vaguely functional, vaguely beneficial government that might have an opportunity to grow with some international help, whether we happen to think you're good guys or not? Uh, and so what they're trying desperately now is to realize that the real war, the war of opinion, is only just beginning for them. Otherwise, it may just prove to be a, you know, a Pyrrhic victory. Uh, they are lords of effectively nothing. So in the fullness of time, certainly over the next year, as you mentioned, Jeff, the press is going to be taking a hard look at this. And there are going to be anecdotal stories of atrocities that come out. But in the aggregate, will things get better for women, for Afghans in general? This is the thing that remains to be seen. I agree. That's exactly where we need to focus. You know, I think a lot of our energy is on reflecting on what went wrong and remembering, but actually the next few days, if not weeks, are going to be critical in, in what sort of norms we set. And I was reading an article, actually it was an interview that NPR had posted that was 
the, what the Taliban told the NPR about their plans for Afghanistan. And on the women's question, they basically said, you know, women will be allowed to go to school, they'll be allowed to work, but they have to wear a hijab. Like that's out of the question. So I think understanding, you know, uh, red lines, like what is the red line of the Taliban? Is it going to be that women will be allowed to work and be in kind of the economy as they have been, but they will have to wear a hijab? Is that okay? Is that not okay? Those questions clear, clearly are going to be important. But also, you know, in that interview, they said U.S. evacuation will be possible without any sort of attacks. They denied all the human rights abuses that the U.N. is negotiating. So you're right. The Taliban is trying to manage their public image. Um, and the the interviewer was asking, you know, are you a different organization than you were in 1990? You know, are you going to be doing public executions? Are you going to be cutting off hands of people who steal? And there was a little bit of like, no, we're going to set up a system, a judiciary system with three courts where, you know, the rule of law will be followed. So I'm a woman who cares deeply about the rights uh, of women. Um, I also think that we have to be at the table right now. Uh, and by we, I mean the international community. Otherwise, I worry that stepping away completely would actually um, be problematic. But I also don't think that we should stay at the table if it's clear that human rights abuses will continue. So it's a very, very delicate line. And I am not an expert, therefore I will not pretend I'm an expert here. But I hope that our attention, 150%, is on right now the negotiations and not on trying to assess what went wrong, because that can wait in my mind. That can wait for a few weeks uh, but if we miss this opportunity to be at the table in the negotiations, I worry about what chart we're sort of we're allowing the Taliban to go down into the future. Well, looking at it in a retrospective at this point, uh, it's it's kind of interesting in that so much of what did happen in Vietnam was a precursor to what we're witnessing now. And I'm not just talking about our awkward departure. We were fighting communism. We were worried about the, the red spread across the country and so on, and all the horrible things that were going to happen. Today, we look at a Vietnam that's effectively competing with us on the world stage with labor and prospering in many respects, doing jobs that once were never considered to be anything other than an American job. Uh, they're offshoring. People go to Vietnam today and it's a very different place. And that's within our lifetimes. So it remains to be seen as to whether or not as you point out, Natalia, if we can actually find some way to do good in a bad neighborhood and what the Taliban ultimately might be encouraged, enticed to do cooperatively with other world leaders. And yes, absolutely, we should engage. Engage beyond just getting ourselves extricated, but engage ongoing to figure out what kind of carrots are appropriate that encourage the behaviors that we would like to see. And I hope that the press finds a way to balance the story and, and not just simply pull up the occasional anecdote, the occasional data point of one of, of this atrocity and that atrocity, which personalizes it and makes it for great television. The story does need to be balanced in terms of what is the general progress? What is the general gain? What is the general new disposition for women in the aggregate? And I hope that that story manages to stay alive uh, beyond what might be easy pickings down at the bottom of the food chain uh, for narratives. And I just Natalia, can I ask you, you've worked at the UN and uh, you've indicated earlier in, in your comments that the UN will stay there. I'm curious, what will the UN do 
And um, how will they involve other countries in the world to try to address the issues that uh, we've talked about today? Yeah, so the UN will stay in um, at the moment or right before this sort of crisis, they had around 300 international staff and 3000 national staff. So it's UN paying the salaries of Afghans who were working for the UN there. And that included people in UNICEF, which is, you know, the, the agency that takes care of children and sort of malnutrition and education, included UNDP, the organization that helps with governance, you know, all the salaries, for example. I don't know if this is still the case recently, but in, in recent years, the salaries of the police were paid through the UN because the government itself didn't have the infrastructure to ensure that there wasn't any potential for corruption. So the UN would manage kind of the transactions, paying police, paying kind of public s- sector people. There was the UN kind of the political folks trying to engage on the negotiations with the government on on what it means to have free and fair elections, free press. There's the organizations that work on women's rights, um, climate change. You know, there are programs from the UN that work on uh, reducing, you know, climate mitigation and adaptation. So everything that you care about in every country has to happen in Afghanistan. It's not just the political side. I think that's, at the moment, what I've read is that about 100 of those 300 um, international staff are moving to Kazakhstan um, temporarily to continue working on Afghanistan from there. But I think there is a bit of worry for international staff that the situation, you know, they may be attacked, right? And I think the UN has been attacked in other situations. Uh, for those of us who worked at the UN, we, you know, Iraq, um, you know, the headquarters was attacked. There was a huge death toll. So the UN needs to protect its staff. So they're not being kind of cavalier here. They are taking some people out that aren't essential on the ground. But I think what they're trying to say is that we are staying because right now the civilian needs will increase. Any transition, any peaceful transition in government requires you know, support. But right now the people of Afghanistan are scared. You know, I have read reports of people just trying to find any way out you know, because they don't believe the promises that the Taliban is making. They don't believe that they'll be able to continue working. They don't believe that they won't be executed uh, for, you know, speaking against the government. So there's something that has to, you know, so right now I think there's so much volatility that the UN, you know, and obviously there's the UN parts, UNHCR, UNOHCHR, which is the human rights part, and then the part that uh, deals with internal um, and displaced people. So there are so many needs uh, for the UN right now. And I hope, and I, I think, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. is getting more money, for example, to the World Food Program to get, you know, it's the humanitarian stage. Now, what the U.N. from the political level will do to make sure that the U.K., Norway, other countries are part of the conversation is so that it's not just the U.S. This isn't just right now about the U.S. and Afghanistan. It's about the entire international community. And I think us as the America leaning in and saying, yes, we want to embrace that. It's not just about, you know, our withdrawal clearly impacts what is happening on the ground, but the solution has to be multifaceted. And the countries that, you know, are actually really important to Afghanistan are Pakistan. You know, what will Pakistan do are kind of the neighboring countries. There's like oil lines, you know, trade, like those are actually top issues too that we don't think about. But if the Taliban is isolated, what happens with trade and food imports and oil and gas and, you know, all of those things. So I'm not sure I'm answering your question, um, Jeff, but I do think that uh, we should lean and follow what the UN is saying, what they're doing. Uh, you know, the Security Council is obviously where governments negotiate with each other. But then there's the arm of the UN, which is the development arm, which is basically UNICEF, uh, WHO, that provides services to the people. And they're sort of separate. We have to continue providing services to people, 
while also having these political negotiations. You know, that's exactly what I was looking for. And uh, thank you for answering that. I think that's information that uh, folks who are listening to the show uh, need to hear that, you know, uh, there are folks out there. I just was a little uh, unnerved when I he heard you talking about uh, oil and gas being uh, moved in there because uh, that's really not good for the climate there. So why put that stuff there? But, I, yeah, I, I agree. I, I say agree. that tongue in big, cheek. <laughs> I'm a big climate activist and I, I, I but you know, I think in many parts of the world, unfortunately, we don't have the infrastructure we need for green energy and no energy is actually a, you know, is, is that's a, a problem. You need, you need to cook. You need to. And you know, Natalia, uh, you also bring up a point too that uh, refreshes in my mind something that actually happened 20 years ago, which is the, uh, you know, which sort of brought us to this part of the world. The idea that the United Nations, I think, should have a major role is one that I truly support. Uh, the international community, and I think the Taliban is looking for that kind of that kind of acknowledgement, and they want to be recognized by the international community as a legitimate government. And as the United States, I think the best thing we can do is to bring the United Nations in. And, uh, you, you know, and I think that's part of one of the fault lines that we created back in uh, 2001 was when we went to the United Nations and started challenging the United Nations and its authority to help investigate and report on atrocities around the world. And I'm thinking about those weapons of mass destruction um, and the misleading nature that our government set up in the United Nations, when I think that their role at that particular point in time was critical in terms of helping to stabilize and to keep peace over something that we later found out was a falsehood. Uh, and since then, we've got done much more in terms of America trying to go it alone uh, than what we should have. We should have, uh, I, you know, I, you know, I think that we should have it, it long ago created the United Nations force to try to stabilize publicly to stabilize Afghanistan and to help to oversee its transition into a democratic nation. And I think that part of what we're looking at now is the failure of America standing alone policy. I don't think that, you know, our moving our troops out should have been part of moving an international United Nations peacekeeping force in to help stabilize that government and to help stabilize and support uh, their troops. So what's your thought about that? I mean, you know, I think there is a a corollary here to our diplomacy, which is to stop believing that we're the only people and our military is so superior to everybody that we can't establish uh, relationships on a military basis with the rest of the world. Yeah, I'm I'm not an expert on UN peacekeeper, but peacekeepers, but yes, I mean that's the how we use them across the world. UN peacekeepers are in uh, Lebanon, you know, between Lebanon and Israel. They're in Cyprus. They are, you know, uh, there are missions of the UN in many parts of the world that are, you know, there to make sure that they preserve peace. And I think what we lost here was an orderly transition, right? Seven days, and it was over. And I think that time frame. Um, but I do agree with you. I don't know if there had been conversations um, about, you know, a large, there is right now, a, UNAMA is the, the peacekeeping mission in Afghanistan. It's the UN assistance mission in Afghanistan, but it's not that large. It was set up in 2002. 
Um, and I think because of the U.S. presence, it didn't need to be a huge one. And, you know, I'm not I'm not an expert on it, so I need to look back um, in terms of what its full mission is, where they're present, how big it is. I think the Italians are part of the kind of the leadership there. So, you know, th there is that role. I also wanted to say on the kind of humanitarian thing, there is a big ethical dilemma, and I've been struggling with it on our conversation today, is, you know, you have to provide emergency support. But the minute you're pouring money and supporting people and giving them their education and stuff, you are inadvertently propping up the government because the people will no longer want to vote out that government because you are meeting their needs. So there is this ethical dilemma for the whole aid system is like, how much support do you give to people and allow a government that is not meeting their needs to stay? And, you know, I think many people say in the early days, emergency relief, humanitarian relief is a must. You don't want people to die. But if you protract that support for for ages, you are inadvertently helping that government. And if that government does not follow your values, it, it oppresses women, it, it oppresses religious minorities, it, you know, then you are unintentionally supporting them. So ethics and, and a moral conversation of, of where and how you support is also part of the conversation. And uh, I'm sorry if I'm getting too kind of superficial here, but I, it's something I've struggled with a lot. Like the whole aid industry, um, you know, you're, you're obviously meeting a need because you're helping people who need that, but you're also propping up a government that is not meeting their needs. And, and where is the right balance? I think that there are some governments that actually deliberately play that card. I wouldn't rule that out. Let me say this in closing, uh, from, from my perspective, I not only have learned quite a bit in this conversation, which is why I appreciate the different perspectives that we all bring. And it also has given me some solace too, and something to reflect on. And Jeff, in particular, the role of the press, uh, and not to Leah, the fact that we should not try to do the analysis now. Right now, we have a humanitarian crisis. We need to deal with the here and now. People need food. They need shelter. Uh, they need some assurances that uh, you know they're not going to be slaughtered in the street. And I think that's that's key. That's number one. Uh, the finger pointing and all of the analysis and Monday morning or Tuesday morning quarterbacking uh, can take place later. So I appreciate those perspectives. And uh, uh, and I hope our listeners have also appreciated the fact, too, that we we've done more than just talk about uh, you know, sort of the superficial issues. And, uh, you know, I think, Natalia, you have helped us to get down into what I think are the real great details of what it is that we ought to be considering as citizens and what we ought to be watching for. You know, in January of um, 2019, I, I'm, I'm sure I've shared this with you in the past, that's when I went to Plains, Georgia and sat in Jimmy Carter's Sunday school. And um, part of the lesson, he implored us to go home and take out the UN's uh, Declaration of Human Rights. And I did it. I, I read it and uh, I reread it several times. But when we have a discussion like we had today, it brings home the importance of that particular document and the and the work that is done. So I'm going to pick it up again this afternoon after this uh, this call is over, and I'm going to look at it again because uh, it's a great opportunity to reflect on um, on those values. So thanks for the conversation today. I too really enjoyed this conversation and I hope that we can revisit uh, Afghanistan in a few weeks and uh, be more optimistic like Jeff has been. I too am optimistic. I, I wanna share that I, I am optimistic that we can 
even in this tragedy of, of losing a 20 year war and, and you know, um, stepping back that we can actually uh, step forward in a way that meets the needs of the Afghan people. I also think that uh, rewinding all the way back to September 11th, if there are any reasonable minds in the rank and file of the Taliban, they have to realize that, you know, history says that shoring up, supporting, aiding and abetting someone like a bin Laden that orchestrated through Al Qaeda, these attacks on the U.S. ended up not being a good thing. It was clearly a net minus because it led to the horrific 20 years that unfolded. That said, I'm hoping that saner opinions will prevail and that perhaps the Taliban will realize that, you know, we need at least detente. We can't be harboring people from our soil that run around engaging in international terrorism because ultimately it just leads at the minimum to sanctions and certainly continues to damage the people and damage our opportunity to be able to maintain control by anything other than pure force. So if they're going to engage in a public relations uh, war, uh, they're going to have to understand that they need to, uh, to be a peaceable people at the minimum. And they've said as much, we've gotten all the lip service, all the words are sounding encouraging. And now what we need to see is how those words unfold into real actions. Now we need to see how those words unfold into real actions, positive actions, and the avoidance of problems that resulted from uh, harboring Al-Qaeda. So the future, in my mind, is cautiously positive, but we shall see. We shall see. This is our more perfect union. Once again, thank you for joining us. Thanks to our state representative, Jeff Roy, more perfect as always, our more perfect higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, and our ever more perfect Dr. Natalia Linos. We now leave you with this more perfect thought. The future is what we make of it. And I hope that we finds some way through God's grace to include the thinking of the Taliban and how to move forward in a positive way. This is FPR.